Welcome to our next episode of the 5 Moments of Need Performance Matters series. This is Bob Mosier, one of the many co-hosts you'll meet throughout this series. So friends, are you trying to learn more about the 5 Moments of Need? Maybe how to design for them, implement for them, measure them and even sell them as an approach to your enterprise. Well, in the Performance Matters series, we will help you better understand the theory and best practices behind this powerful methodology and offer proven ways to put the five moments of need into practice. Okay, welcome back, everyone. Bob Mosier here from the Performance Matters podcast, as you heard me introduce in the beginning. So glad to have you all back here. We appreciate you listening in and being a part of these. This particular episode is going to be in our Strategy Matters performance matters series and we could not think of a better person to have and one of the more strategic gentlemen that I know in the L&D space as long as I've known him one of my heroes in this world uh, Mr. Rob Lauber. Rob welcome. Bob great to be here. Uh, hero is a really big statement these days so I have to put you in my category as hero as well but well, well it is gratitude uh, conversation after the podcast. Yeah, I think that is. Well, it is true, my friend. So it's so great to have you. We so appreciate your time, especially with all that you've gone through. Rob, why don't we do this? I, as, as people know, I don't do introductions when we have guests on and so on. I kind of let's just segue into the conversation we'll have around workflow learning and other things. So why don't you give us a bit of your journey in, in getting into the space and what you've done in the L&D area? Uh, about 30 years now in L&D, actually just passing 30 years. So kind of <laughs> frightening. You and I, I think, are in that same category. We are. Second tier, because I know Elliot's in the 40-year-plus category. So yep. we're outranked on a few by a few people out there. Started really as a stand-up trainer delivering sales skills training, five days a week, 40 weeks a year uh, at a conference <laughs> center in, in south of Atlanta. And from there, moved into instructional design, worked for Coopers and Librarian for a little bit, which was a short 15-month experience, but fantastic experience around really understanding business strategy and serving clients and those kind of pieces. Then I went over to Bell South and worked there in their wireless business, which became then Singular Wireless from 2000 to 2006, and then became AT&T. That's what was old, was new again, and back to AT&T. And then I was at Yum Brands from 2006 to 2014, where I got the chance to lead the global learning and development efforts across their three brands, KFC, Pizza, and Taco Bell. And then I moved over to McDonald's, the dark side or the bright side, depending on who you were in that conversation when I did that <laughs> in 2014. And I led all the learning and development strategy for McDonald's from 2014 till I retired in October of 2020. And now I'm doing my own thing, hanging my own shingle here and quasi-retirement or the next chapter of my life, I guess I would say. And I am currently consulting to a couple of startup businesses, four or five startup businesses, actually, helping a few businesses with learning strategy, learning transformation, particularly one client I'm working right now with is around sort of structural conversations. So very interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. How do they position themselves to better serve the business? And then I'm also doing a little bit of work like this where I'm doing some podcasts uh, around the world with different people. So lots of fun there. It's excellent. Well, my friend, it, it is an amazing journey. I'll tell you, Rob, I think one of the things I've always enjoyed most about our talks in my time with you and listening to you when you spoke like this before is you're probably one of the more pragmatic CLOs I have ever met. And you've done a remarkable job of that. I think few of us, I, I would, yeah, I would definitely even put myself in this camp for sure is that I didn't go to business school. I'm an educator by trade. I have the pedigree and the master's in education, all that kind of stuff. And so 
I think where a lot of L&D falls short, frankly, and, and it's not a malicious thing, but it's P&L and all that kind of stuff. We don't even know the acronyms, let alone the math. So you've done just a remarkable job of being such a pragmatic champion of the business. And therefore, the learning solutions I've watched you architect over your career have, by no surprise, been practical and effective. They speak to performance, which is obviously what this entire entire podcast is about. So let, let's kind of segue a bit into this because you, you we had conversations, I think, Rob, about workflow learning before it was even a buzzword. I mean, it was whenever we talked about the work you were doing back in Yum and earlier, and then of course into McDonald's, you were never enamored by a technology. I didn't ever see you chase a trend. Every time you'd open your mouth to talk about your work, you'd be like, well, the business has the following <laughs> needs. And so unfortunately, I think, when unfortunately, sometimes it runs in the face of L&D. I think sometimes in, in the degree to which we defend or stand up for the, for the things that we have traditionally done over and over. So, so tell me a bit about workflow learning, my friends, and your thoughts around that. Because you have, such, like I said, I think you have such a really pragmatic view of how it's played a part in your journey in all that you did. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, I mentioned Cooper's Library and my 15 months stint there and how influential it was. During that 15 months, I got to work with Gloria Geary, mm. who most people on this podcast may or may not know. And if you don't <laughs> know, you should research her because everything she was working on in the early 90s is, is the yeah. now, yep. right? Uh, she was just literally almost 30 years ahead of her time in terms of thinking and action. And so we were working in a human resources outsourced benefits call center, basically, I would say today. And Cooper's Library and PwC now at the time was toying with setting up, uh, you know, an outsourced call center that can handle four or five clients at the time. And someone will call in and say, I need to know what my 401k balance is. And this, uh, unfortunately, was before the pervasiveness of the internet. So I'll just date Mm -hmm. myself even worse than that. (laughs) And what Gloria came in to do was really about how do we just answer that question as simply as possible? And when you looked at the people's desks at the time, there were literally five computers and five screens on the Mm -hmm. desk Mm -hmm. and a phone. And the phone call would come in and based on what client it was, you turn to that computer. And you think about that from a scalability perspective was wildly inefficient uh, at the time was incredibly difficult to execute and, you know, was not a sustainable solution. So what I worked with her on was, figuring out how we put a front end over all of that that simplifies it so that folks that came in could easily answer those most common questions without having to do a ton of research. And that was really about my first experience with what today we're calling learning in the flow. Yeah. How do you simplify a task or how do you design the workspace and the workplace in such a way that people don't really have to learn but the answers become readily and easily accessible to them. And for me, it was pretty profound because the conversation was about how do we eliminate the need for training? Yeah. Yeah. And then it kind of runs in the face of L and D though. Right. I mean, and this is, this is the, this is why I, I love having this conversation with you, Rob, because so much of it is about preserving training, if you will, or how much we have to train them up on, or there's so much they really should know before we ever let them do anything or get near anything. And so what do you say to those who say, well, is that really training or learning that you're describing? Or is there a need for it in the context of what you're describing and in the experience you've had when you've implemented solutions like that? Yeah, this is where the pragmatic side of me comes out, because I think the 
piece for me is like, it's about performance, right? right. So, hey, it's the performance series. So this is even better. But I think the goal of any business is for the people to be performing as quickly as possible. And when you look at what we were doing there, for example, it was a week on each client, you know, and you'd go over the whole benefits program and all the rules and God, I can't even figure out mine. And I'm sure most people listening <laughs> don't know theirs. They just know where to find the answer on these rules. And so the deconstruction of that really, it's just incredibly inefficient. It's not serving the business end. The time to productivity was pretty big. All these people are getting paid to sit in a classroom to get a bunch of knowledge dumped on them that they're not going to remember when that first call comes in. And so that re was really influential for me because I think it, it basically got me thinking, and I've used this throughout my career to think about how do I be the, the contrarian to the practice that I lead inside my business. Hmm. So when people come and say, we need training, they're saying, we want you to build a solution. Right. And the impulse is to say, sure, let's go. Yeah. As opposed to, well, what's the problem that we're trying to solve? Let's get around it a little bit, Rob, because I think there's the pivot for me, my friend. There's the pivot is that, and I, I can't tell you how many L&D professionals I talk to who go, but you know what? I, I can't get the business to talk about performance. Well, I don't know about you, Rob, but it, I, at least my take has always been, well, then you got to be asking the wrong question because I don't know if you managers or people in business who they may not be able to go to the point of some of the measurement things and we, we put on stuff, but there are performance things that keep them up at night. They, sure. they, they know the parts of their business that aren't working. They know the employee who's struggling. They know the program that, that people aren't performing well enough around. How did you host that conversation in, in the world you've been in? How did you turn that around? And, and, and even, even broader, you're probably not the person who had this conversation one-on-one -on -one every time. You ran large learning teams. How did you get them to that place in their thinking and their approach? I think that uh, one of the things I really worked on with my team was to not confine ourselves in boundaries, mm. right? which can be good or bad because suddenly you're stomping into the communications team's world or suddenly you're over in the OD team's world or something like that. But you can go and get that help and you can right. recognize what the problem is that you're trying to solve. And so one of the things I was really, you know, I tried to always reinforce, particularly with my leaders and instructional designers that would come fresh out of college and work on the teams, those kind of things was always be clear on the problem you're trying to solve and not yeah. be thinking about the solution that you might be an expert in, yeah. right? So, you know, you're an e-learning designer. That's great. The, the answer is not always e-learning. So how do you handle that as the e-learning designer? Right. You need to sit there and say, well, actually, there's a better way to do it. And it's not to create an e-learning program. You do X, Y, and Z. And I think reinforcing that messaging and frankly, recognizing people for doing that is really important. And I think as a leader, that's one of the things I always try to get my team thinking about mm -hmm. and constructing is, are there better ways to solve the problem than to create some training programs? And to your point about getting the business to talk about performance, I'd argue that Anybody that's listening that works for a public company that has that feeling, listen to an analyst call, Yeah, <laughs> right? You'll hear your CEO, you hear your CFO, yep. you hear whoever talking about performance. So it's not one of those things that is foreign to them. So in retooling your team then, Rob, I mean, so it, uh, those IDs came out of college, I'm guessing, with a fairly myopic view of the deliverable. If they were an ISD and so on, and, and I can't tell you again how many... I'm folks listening, I'm sure in this call, when they, if they step back and look at their repertoire of their toolkit, 
the list maybe kind of runs pretty short. And, and, I'm, and I guarantee right now it's pivoting on virtual something. But between you and I, it, it's a pig with lipstick. I mean, it's, it's got, it's maybe just another view of, of how we might do ILT. And there's a lot of wonderful things to it. But I, I got to believe that at least a lo- the deliverables I've looked at over the last year, it, it's still a class. So you've got that e-learning developer, you've got your trainers, you've got your ISDs, and you're leading that group. You're pivoting on performance and not predetermining the deliverable. How did you help them when that deliverable fell outside of that traditional offerings? Well, I think the conversation then becomes about collaboration and and working across boundaries. Mm. So it might be a technical solution that could be more efficient or be more impactful on trying to fix the performance problem that needs to happen. So how do you reach over to that IT organization and engage someone in the IT organization to help you solve that problem, Mm. right? How do you reach over to someone in your OD team who's got a lot more experience and expertise than you and say, you know, um, there's 10 different training organizations and we're stepping all over each other. So how do we help get this solved? I think the big thing is being really clear on the problem that you're trying to solve and the performance outcome that you're trying to achieve, as well as that's probably synonymous to the measure of success, how you're going to know you got there. Well, I want to go on that a little bit. That was my next thing I want to lead into is measurability. Rob, our industry has chased ROI. I like see you smiling. We've been chasing ROI forever. And it's, it's so often pivoted on attendance or LMS reports or smile sheets. I don't think it's malicious because many like Patrick and Phillips and others have tried to push us into these other realms. But I find our industry, even today, particularly with all the demands being put out by, by COVID and the degree to which I think we're being really asked to step up in, a, in probably a more performance focused way than ever, that is still the panacea for us. It's this, yeah. how did you get to measurability? How did you stand on that with your team? And, and what kind of things did you chase after? I think starting at the front of anything and figuring out what the measure of success is going to be with the customer that you're trying to create it for is the most important thing that you can do. Mm. Because all of those pieces, you know, it might be smile sheets, honestly. And, you know, we had a very simple one, three questions. Was this a good use of your time? Would you recommend it to other people? And give me three examples of how your performance is going to improve. Why those three questions? Because the measure of success was the the executive said, that's all I really want to know, (laughs) right? That people can give examples and then we won't have to go out into the wild west of variables in the environment and try and actually stand up and justify. And I've always just believed that if, if you're getting asked to do ROI on a particular program that you're running, typically, not always, but typically you're too late. Somebody's asking that question because their measure of success is not the same as what you might think the measure of success is. So for me, I've always tried to err on the front end of how are we going to measure success of whatever it is that we're going to do up front? And let's agree to those things and then put our measurement system in place as we're designing our solution. And then we know we don't have to waste time with a smile sheet because this is all about time to productivity. Do we agree on what the current measure for that is so that we're using the same measure once we do something to see if it improves? We're looking at the mix of help desk calls that come in and we know what the top five are and we want number three to be out of the top five. Okay. There you go. (laughs) I can measure that, right? It becomes really simple. I don't need big analytics team to do all that work for me. Right. Right. And I think doing that kind of work on the front end becomes really important. Help me understand the problem that we're trying to solve that brings you to me. 
And then if I do something, let's figure out how we're going to determine whether or not it actually changed or solved the problem that we were originally set out to, to change. You know, it's interesting because a friend of mine that uh, I've talked to a lot about this says, you know, that in the absence of true measures, everything's important. And therefore, everything should be covered and taught. And that and L&D has fallen into that hole, Rob, for so long. And, and to your point, since, since I've made a shift to performance more and try to lead with the questions you've outlined, all of a sudden, the five days of X or the three e-learnings on Y or the whatever don't become as important anymore. And what the SME thinks should be always covered and talked about and, and taught in a two and a half day fire hose course isn't apropos because you know very specifically what you're going to go after to try to solve the problem that you've been asked to to solve, right? It, it narrows the deliverable and makes it a little more apparent than just a, if you will, spray and pray kind of yeah. an approach to hope about things. Yeah. And, I, and you know, and I think that's why things like workflow-based learning are becoming even more important. And I think what you're seeing is the instructor-led model, terrible on COVID, but at the same time, thank God for COVID, because mm-hmm. now we don't have to imagine what it, what our world would be like if we didn't have a classroom to lean on, right? right? right. Uh, and, and what you're seeing, though, is no one's running Zoom sessions for 32 hours across four consecutive days. Right. It's an hour here, an hour and there. So what's happening is we're self-editing down yeah. to what's really most important which is probably where we should have started to begin with yeah. Uh, in terms of what we deliver. And it's, you know, it's 12 hours across four days instead of, right. right. So we're, we're a lot more efficient and I think we're applying a good self filter on that anyway. So this has been wonderful as always, my friends, let's, let's sort of put a bow on this with this idea of you sat in the highest seat in these organizations through some difficult times in 2008, some other things that were kind of <laughs> crazy economically, but I don't know about you, buddy, but this has been a remarkable. And I don't mean remarkable in a positive way. I don't mean in, in, a, in a terrible way. It's just been a remarkable time to reflect on a lot more than learning, but this is the world we're in and kind of looked at it pretty hard every day. And, and it's taken a hit in a lot of ways. If a friend of mine said that this is exposed in his organizations, it's made cracks in the dam into just chasms. Because the, the ability to sweep some things under a rug or sit through something for five days, and that probably was enough, isn't, isn't enough by any means anymore. Well, how would you advise folks in the time we're in now and coming out of it? I hate the new normal question. I'm not going to ask you that. But the lessons learned and things like workflow learning and others, what, what do you think if you're advising folks sitting in that seat, what, what should be top of mind in, in the next part of this thing? You know, it, it's funny. I think that the same theme applies now as applied 2007, as mm. applied in the 2001.com boom, as applied in 1996, I think when the internet exploded, and will probably apply in a couple times in the next 30 years. Yeah. Because I, I can think of six, five or six different major pivot points across the last 30 years. I can only imagine there'll be five or six more in the next 30 years. Sure. And that is, my advice is, Keep all options on the table Mm. and don't weigh one more heavily than another. If you stay objective to that, I think that the adaptability and the resilience will come through. And for me, it's not even about ignoring like new methods and you comment that I hadn't chased trends because I'm, I'm more like, I don't mind being an early experimenter, but I never really had that kind of luxury that, you know, I did a few like I experimented with Google Glass at KFC in 2012, and we figured out if we could 
show somebody who knew nothing how to make Kentucky Fried Chicken um, yep. Google Glass. And it was a good experiment and it was valid, but it wasn't ready for prime time. Hmm. And so I've always been a later adopter because I think that there's a lot of, particularly on the technology side, there's a lot of advances that happen after the 1.0 version comes out. Mm-hmm. And two, there's a lot of learning from other people that can take place and those that can afford to experiment can do it. Yeah. And so, but for me, the advice is really consider all those things. So virtual reality, you might not have a great use case for it now, but it doesn't mean it shouldn't be in your wheelhouse of understanding and in your wheelhouse of consideration right next to instructor-led training, right next to text-based learning or redesigning a website or some software so that people don't actually have to be trained to do it. All those things should really be on the table. And I think if you keep that and whatever the next shiny thing is in the cards in your hand, no matter what the game is on the table, you'll be able to play the right ones at the right moment. Perfect. So when you look back, what, what is the one thing or two things or whatever, you give a number to it that you would tell yourself before you headed into this journey? What, what, do you, what have been your greatest lessons learned in the, in the remarkable journey you've been on? I think that um, a couple things early got me on a trajectory to be successful. The importance of building alliances across the organization. Mm-hmm. Mm. more than within your organization. So don't be insular to HR if that's where you report into or operations if that's where you report into or whatever function you you live in. Be a collaborator. So work more broadly across the organization. Try to be business first instead of learning first because the business is why you're there, (laughs) right? And um, you'll, you'll be wildly successful if you help the business become more successful, even if it has nothing to do with learning. I love um, that. But sometimes your common sense brain power is. It. And then I think the, the other thing for me has always been there's a few models and, you know, one of them, like, how do we eliminate the need for training is sort of a core question for me at the address at the beginning of any problem I'm trying to solve. I think having some core models and frameworks that you use that guide you and keep you sort of true to what you're doing is really important. Brilliant. Well, my friend, as always, it's a wonderful conversation and uh, you definitely qualify in the hero realm for me. <laughs> it's been great to see again, like as, as I expected this talk to be, it was, it's pragmatic, it's, it's practical, and it's based on a lot of great humble advice. Uh, you've, you've never let that get ahead of the good work that you've done. Great to have you. I so appreciate you taking the time and, and helping us and, and joining us for this. Bob, thanks for having me here. Really great. Absolutely. Be well. Well, that's it for this episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. We look forward to future conversations around how to best put the five moments of need into practice. We welcome your feedback and can be reached on Twitter using my Twitter handle at BMOSH, as well as our Five Moments of Need website, which is www.5momentsofneed.com. We hope you're finding these helpful and will subscribe to future episodes. Have a great day, friends.